Hi, I'm Mike Dilk and you're listening to the Relax Bank UK show. The show that explores all kinds of health topics relevant to you, your family and your friends. Each week I talk to expert guests from a range of backgrounds to inform and entertain you. So please do join the Relax Bank UK family and stay tuned. Hi and thank you for joining me on the Relax Bank UK show. The show this week deals with some enormous numbers which are currently causing real problems and are likely to cause even more for the entire population of the planet. There's approximately 540 million adults um, and over uh, 1.2 million children adolescents who have been diagnosed with diabetes. Again, talking type 2 diabetes here. The International Diabetes Federation also estimate that there'd be about 250 million people living with undiagnosed diabetes worldwide. The topic is diabetes. My guest is Sean Gaffney, General Manager of Roche Diabetes Care UK and Ireland. And I make that a possible 791 million people on the planet with diabetes. This puts a burden on health systems around the world. The NHS currently spends approximately £14 billion every year uh, on treating diabetes. So that's almost 10% of its entire budget. We speak about this, the problems that health systems face, but it's not all doom and gloom as there's plenty we can all do to help. I started by asking Sean about Roche, as I suspect it's kind of a very large company that many people don't really know much about. Oh, good morning, Mike, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to have the conversation with you today. Uh, yes, we are a large company. We're uh, the largest biotech uh, company in the world. Um, globally, we employ about 100,000 people, Mike, uh, employed in over 150 countries across uh, pharmaceuticals and diagnostics. Okay. So, so it's if just you me that hasn't really come across you. Everyone else has. Well, perhaps, Mike. Well, specifically here in the UK and Ireland, if you haven't heard of us, um, we've got over 2,200 employees and uh, we're a very important part of the uh, healthcare industry here in the UK, supporting indirectly over 20,000 uh, jobs. And we're contributing about 1.3 billion to the UK economy every year. So if you haven't heard of us, uh, that's a little bit of about who we are. No, excellent. Good. Thank you very much indeed. I, I want to um, pick your brains a little bit about uh, diabetes, diabetes in general. Sure. And I've got all, all sorts of things that I, I want to find out about it. But certainly on the, on the media, um, you kind of get the impression, I get the impression that it's, it's going up um, everywhere you know, in the whole world, but certainly in the UK. Is, is, is that the case, really? Um, unfortunately, Mike, it absolutely is the case. Um, so let's talk about the UK. The number of people living with diabetes in the UK has actually doubled in the last 20 years, uh, mainly due uh, to the rapid rise in the number of people living with type 2 diabetes. It's actually predicted that somewhere in the region of five and a half million people will have diabetes in the UK by 2030. So your assumptions are absolutely correct. Okay. So, I mean, that is absolutely huge. Five and a half million out of, well, the population by then, what are we thinking? 70 million, maybe? That's about it. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's, a, that's a big percentage. 
All right, so you, you, you mentioned type 2 diabetes there. It, it might be worth just uh, quickly going through what the difference is because there's type 1 and type 2. You're absolutely right. So it's important, as you say, Mike, to distinguish between the different types of diabetes. So around 90% of people with living with diabetes will have type 2. Around 8% of people living with diabetes will have what's called type 1. There are around 2% of people with rarer types of diabetes, probably not going to get into those today, but to talk about the two, uh, I suppose, main types. Firstly, type 1. People living with type 1 diabetes tend to get diagnosed at a younger age, and it has nothing to do with lifestyle factors at all. These people can be, in some instances, incredibly active. The main difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes is that type 1 is a genetic condition, often showing up in early life. Type 2 is mainly, and I'm being careful with my words here, mainly lifestyle-related and develops over time. With type 1 diabetes, basically it's your immune system attacking and destroying the insulin-producing cells in your pancreas. However, with type 2 diabetes, it's when your body is unable to make enough insulin or the insulin you are making doesn't work properly. Okay. It's also important to say that there are some people who can develop gestational diabetes. That happens obviously during pregnancy. And in many cases, they haven't ever been affected by diabetes before. And just does that with then go type away two, once they have, once it, they have the baby? It, in, in most cases, yes. Okay. It's important also to remember, Mike, that with type 2 diabetes, there are a number of factors that may impact a person's likelihood of developing it. And as I said, lifestyle can be a part of that. So a person's diet, maybe the amount of exercise they do, and whether maybe they smoke or not can have an impact. These are things that can be changed, but we always have to be cognizant that it's not always that simple. Nothing ever is in life, certainly in medicine, <laughs> though, I find. <laughs> sure, well, absolutely. So we, we, you, were, you were speaking then about... Um, the number of people that might have diabetes in the UK. What about mm. the rest of the world? So is, is, are some parts of the world kind of getting more of a problem uh, as far as a rapid increase in diabetes uh, than others? It's, and, and, you know, kind of what might be the reasons behind that? Uh, absolutely. Um, so I suppose pushing some numbers towards you, if I may, globally, there is approximately 540 million adults um, and over uh, 1.2 million children adolescents who have been diagnosed with diabetes. Again, talking type 2 diabetes here. The International Diabetes Federation also estimate that there'd be about 250 million people living with undiagnosed diabetes worldwide. When you talk about areas, that's really interesting. So if you look at, say, the Western Pacific region, I'm talking about countries like Australia, China, Indonesia, maybe Japan, Malaya, and other countries. That accounts for the highest proportion currently of adults with diabetes worldwide. That's close to 40%. Actually, China will account for one in four of all adults with diabetes worldwide. But to answer your question, the number of people 
with diabetes are growing most quickly in the Middle East and Africa. Uh, some numbers coming out of Africa in particular would be an estimation to increase by 130% by 2045. So yes, uh, as, as we talked about, the numbers in the UK are increasing, but this is a global trend that we're seeing, Mike. And Okay, this is probably an impossible question, or a very difficult question anyway, but I'll ask it anyway. Does Good. anyone know or have a handle on why those increases are so huge in other parts of the world? I mean, even larger well, than here. Um, it's a great question. I mean, it's, it is impossible to give you a definitive answer, but there are some factors, Mike. Genetics, for example. Uh, some, some people uh, are more predisposed to develop diabetes, maybe due to their family history. Ethnicity is another, as some people of some ethnicities are more likely to develop uh, diabetes than others, Mike. Okay. All right. So it, it's a problem uh, for sure. We've established that. Now, something that I, I want to delve into, because I've come across people that have told me that they are diabetic or on the verge of being diabetic. And they are, you know, friends of mine that are, well, probably younger than me, quite active. And you look at them and you think, they're as fit as a fiddle. There can't possibly yeah. be anything wrong with them. You know, they, they go off and they, they do a bit of sport every week. I mean, they, they might not be the, um, the, the, the most uh, active people. You know, they don't run marathons, but they, they do stuff. You know, they seem quite active. So mm. I, I suppose my question is, is it possible to, you know, relatively young and relatively active, but still being on the verge of being a diabetic? It absolutely is, Mike. Um, and and your um, explanation there is is bang on the money for somebody who has pre-diabetes. What that basically means is that their blood sugars are higher than usual, but not high enough to have a diagnosis of type two diabetes. It also, unfortunately, does mean that they are at higher risk of developing type two diabetes, although they may not be experiencing any symptoms. So, so with type 2 diabetes, as we talked about, there are a number of factors that impact a person's likelihood of developing it. And as we said, lifestyle is a part of that. But as we've said, a person's diet, the amount of exercise they do, the smoking, etc. These are things that can be changed, but unfortunately, it isn't always that simple. Right. And so, so that, you know, with that being the case, there, there will be a huge number of people who think, yeah, I'm pretty young, I'm pretty fit, I'm fairly active, and carry on with life as, you know, as they will. Mm -hmm. um, but this could be kind of sa saving up a problem for them in the future. Um, so is, it, is there any way that this kind of, and I can imagine this is a large cohort of people, is, it, is there any way that they can be sort of helped? prevented from becoming diabetic, even though they're kind of thinking, yeah, actually, I'm fine. <laughs> Absolutely. For some people, Mike, early detection can lead to action being taken. And that's most likely a lifestyle change, which can reduce their likelihood of developing type 2 diabetes. But right. well, it's important to remember this is likely not possible for everyone and certainly not a guarantee that someone won't go on to develop diabetes at a later stage. But to your question, with the right support, it is estimated that potentially up to 50% of cases of type 2 diabetes could be prevented or delayed. So 
basically having high blood sugar levels over a long period of time it can damage your your blood vessels and as a result that damages parts of your body including for example your feet and your eyes causing what's known as diabetes complications by preventing or delaying type 2 diabetes you can lower your risk for diabetes related health complications and, and, and the NHS are very aware of this. They're doing a phenomenal job. Prevention of type 2 diabetes, along with a wide range of other conditions, is a key part of the NHS long-term plan to move the general, uh, rather improve the general health of the whole population. Okay. The NHS runs a national diabetes prevention program that aims to identify people who are at risk of developing diabetes and refer them to the kind of lifestyle change program that, that, that you're talking about. And right. as I say, there's evidence to show that this program has reduced a number of new diagnoses of type 2, type two diabetes in the UK and also uh, reduced the risk of developing diabetes for those who complete that kind of program. Right. So, so how does that program work then? So does that, that mean essentially the only way you can find out is with a blood test? Is that right? Right. So to find out if you have diabetes, your GP will need to arrange for you to have exactly that, a blood test that measures what's called your blood glucose or your sugar levels, which is why it's so important that you visit your doctor if you, concern, if you have any concerns that you may have diabetes. You'll usually get results from that kind of a blood test within a few days, and this will indicate whether you have diabetes or not. It will also show, crucially, Mike, if you are at risk of developing type 2 diabetes. Having some of the diabetes symptoms doesn't necessarily mean that you have diabetes, but you should always contact your healthcare professional just to be certain. Okay. So if you're worried at all, give your GP a call. Um, perhaps now would be a good time to talk about some of the, some of the symptoms in the very early stages. Um, what yeah. sort of things, you know, if, if people are, should people look out for or be concerned about? So for many people, uh, diabetes is a hidden condition. You might not be able to see it, but if left untreated or undiagnosed, as we talked about, Mike, it can cause serious harm. So symptoms, they can vary from person to person. And for many, as I said, there's no noticeable symptoms at all. However, the most common diabetes symptoms that are experienced by people living with diabetes are increased thirst, uh, increased urination, uh, feeling really tired, and maybe losing weight. Other symptoms would be recurrent thrush, perhaps slower healing of cuts or wounds, blurred eyesight, uh, and increasing hunger are also uh, common symptoms. With type 2 diabetes, symptoms appear quite slowly, which often make it harder to spot those symptoms. However, the most common symptom for type 2 diagnosis is fatigue. And as we said earlier, untreated diabetes affects many major organs, including your heart, your blood vessels, nerves, eyes, and kidneys. So being diagnosed earlier and managing those blood sugar levels can help prevent these kind of complications, which is so, so important. Right. So again, the message is get on the phone to your GP if you've got any concerns at all. Um, Absolutely. And, and remember, Mike, there is a screen, there are screening uh, systems in place. 
So, for example, if you're aged between 40 and 74, you're eligible to receive what's called an NHS health check. That checks for the presence or risk of type 2 diabetes and indeed other common long-term health conditions. That screening test, as you say, is advisable if you have any of those symptoms of diabetes. And uh, yeah, as you say, get, get on the phone to your GP and uh, have that conversation. So that screening process is something I didn't know about, actually. So anyone in, in the UK between those ages can is, will qualify for it if they don't have if they have symptoms or not of anything. That's absolutely correct, Mike. Yeah. All right. That's, that's worth uh, remembering. Right, let's, mm. uh, let's put that on one side. That might be worth uh, coming back to and talking about more in the future. Um, so moving on, supposing we get a, a we, we get a test and we get a warning that, OK, you're you're pre-diabetic or, you know, you're in danger of becoming a diabetic. Um, and then the doctor might give us some advice, mm -hmm. uh, eat more healthily, do more exercise, that sort of thing. So. It, in my experience, when I get that sort of advice, it is really, I find it quite difficult to actually take it on board and do it. Now, that might not be because I'm not sort of willing to do it. It's, it's just that it, it needs a change in habit, you know, it's, and it's just quite hard to do. So any, any other help available? Because, you know, doctors can tell us to eat better, do more exercise till they're blue in the face. And quite a lot of people, it, it's more simple than just ignoring it. They don't ignore it. They just sort of they find it hard to get it, take it on board and to include it in their life. I completely recognize this, Mike, because uh, I have uh, a couple of close family members who are living uh, with diabetes. And, and indeed, it's common in, in many conditions that, uh, that this can be a challenge. I think it's always important to start by recognizing that each individual is unique and we all need a personalized approach to the support of diabetes management. So if diabetes and lifestyle advice would be useful for the individual, it's so important that being non-judgmental and empathetic, they're essentials in the conversation. And this is why language is extremely important. It's also critical that the person with diabetes feels they have the right support and tools to manage their blood sugar levels, and they come away from these kind of conversations feeling empowered. Going back to Diabetes UK, they outline in their what's called Diabetes is Serious report, to live well with diabetes and avoid complications. All people living with the condition need regular reviews with a healthcare professional and a conversation to agree an individualized care plan. So, so this might include blood sugar manage, management, for example, uh, foot checks, blood pressure monitoring. These kind of regular checks, Mike, are crucial for the early indication of risks and informing the care and treatment required to prevent these kind of complications. I've mentioned a couple of places where support and advice are available. Uh, great organizations, including JDRF, which stands for Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation and Diabetes uh, UK. AccuCheck.co.uk also uh, offers tools, recipes, and lifestyle advice. So, yeah, okay. there, there is really great support out there and great help out there, Mike. Right, so that's important. Actually, we might revisit those places uh, at the end of the chat, so if so Great. people can, can jot them down. Good. Right, so Sean, bef before we started the recording, I 
And this this comes out of people needing uh, support and getting the right sort of help to change their, their lifestyle and habits, really. And I was talking about um, sufferers of diabetes. And mm. he said, well, that's kind of interesting, calling people sufferers. That doesn't always work very well. So I'd like to kind of revisit that a bit and, and uh, just pick your brains on what you think about that. Absolutely. Um, so at Roche, we try to avoid using the word uh, sufferers, Mike, when we talk about people uh, living with diabetes. The language used around diabetes can have such a massive impact on how people living with diabetes and their friends, their family, their caregivers experience diabetes and, and feel about living with it. So, you know, you call people sufferers. We know it comes from a really, really positive place, but we're just very, very aware of language. Actually, there's a brilliant uh, guidance document uh, created by NHS England. If people want to look it up, it's called Language Matters. And it takes you through a, a number of really good examples of the kind of feelings people have um, when when certain types of language is used, I'd really recommend everybody go and review that. Uh, it's 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 a great reference document. Where, where's that available, Sean? So it's called Language Matters. You'll find it on uh, if you Google Language Matters guidance uh, NHS England. That will bring you to the document. It really, really is worth reading. All right, let's uh, let's leave that out there so people can uh, research that, have a look at that. Um, if they if they like, and it sounds like it's worthwhile doing so. I want to move on to something else, which is very important in every aspect of healthcare, and that that is cost and expense. Now, with mm -hmm. more and more people becoming diabetes, becoming a di diabetic, um, inevitably needing help it will, from whichever you know health organisation they're part of. So, in the UK, the, the NHS. This is going to cost the NHS uh, a lot of money potentially. Um, just what? How much? Does anyone know how much it's likely to cost, and what actually what does it cost at the minute to uh, to treat diabetics? Yeah, well, it it is a very expensive um, condition for the NHS. Although it's important to say, Mike, that we're incredibly lucky uh, that we have such a brilliant healthcare system here in the UK because. There are many parts of the world where none of the types of support uh, exist. But yes, you're right. Um, the NHS currently spends approximately £14 billion every year uh, on treating diabetes. So that's almost 10% of its entire budget. Almost 80% of that £14 billion is spent on treating the kind of diabetes-related complications that we talked about uh, earlier in the conversation. Right. But if I may, it's also so important to remember that as well as the financial cost of, of diabetes, it has a huge human cost. So people with diabetes particularly those maybe using insulin to, to, to manage their condition, they've got to make somewhere in the region of 180, it's been calculated, more decisions each day about their health 
than someone without diabetes. So when you think about it, it requires so much effort to continually check blood sugar levels regularly, make those healthy food choices, try to be physically active, remember to take medication and, and so many other health-related decisions several times a day. People with diabetes also experience disproportionately high rates of mental health problems such as depression, anxiety, eating disorders compared to the rest uh, of the population. And you also need to consider that people living with diabetes only have contact with their healthcare professional on average for approximately three hours per year. The rest of the time they care for and they have to manage their diabetes themselves. It's it's such a huge burden and, and, and self-management is key. So patients have to be empowered as we talked about and supported with that self-management and that will benefit the wider healthcare system. But most importantly, it'll improve outcomes for that particular individual. Goodness me, I, I'm, I'm still kind of in shock from that figure you just said, 14 billion, so 10% of the NHS budget. And so that's what's happening now. This isn't what's projected to happen in a few years' time when there's going to be um, more people with diabetes. And that's absolutely correct. The, um, you know, as more people are uh, diagnosed, um, it's highly likely that there will be a correlation between the levels of diagnosis and the costs associated with it. That's why it's so important to have the kind of conversations we're having today, Mike, and, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to, to talk and to raise awareness because all of those elements of awareness will bring us to a place where we can get to prevention. That pre-diabetic phase, preventing people is so important uh, and that will have a huge impact, as I say, not only on the people, but also on the costs going forward. But in those terms, you could almost say it's kind of everybody's civic duty to know something about it and try and do something to um, reduce this impact, whether it's giving some advice to a family member or a friend or yeah. getting yourself down the doctor and, and getting a test. Because, you know, you can save Great Britain um, vast sums of money by doing that. Um, that might be a bit of... Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's the right way of looking at it, but it's, a, it's something that popped into my head anyway, for sure. And then this idea of, apart from the financial cost, you know, the human cost. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky I don't have diabetes and no one in my family does, um, maybe some in my very extended family, but it's not something that I I kind of have dealt with. But this this idea of leading to so many more decisions and just making it just makes your life more complicated, doesn't it? It's such a burden. As I say, it has such a huge human cost. Um, and you're exactly, you're absolutely right, Mike. That's why it's so important that people have an awareness and are willing to support friends, family members, whoever is living with diabetes and experiencing the challenges that we talk about. Yeah. All right. So just talking about some of these challenges um having to keep an eye on your blood sugar and what you eat and all this kind of thing can technology help with some of this stuff to sort of simplify it and if if you know if if you are a diabetic you know you you, you were a pre-diabetic and you might have 
tried all various things, but you've become a diabetic for whatever reason. Um, can you get help? Can you get some help with uh, technology, new technology? Well, I suppose like all walks of life, Mike, um, technology is now playing a huge role um, in the management of diabetes. I mean, diabetes management has come such a long way over the past number of decades. The first blood glucose meter uh, for actual home use, that was introduced back in the 1970s, believe it or not. And since then, we've seen so many advances in technology to support diabetes self-management. Not a lot of great things came out of COVID, Mike, but the COVID pandemic did teach us how important the ability of healthcare professionals to remotely monitor patients can be. And this is particularly important, for example, maybe in the more rural areas or with housebound patients where travel to the hospital or the doctor's surgery can, can be really challenging. Since the pandemic began, digital tools and remote monitoring have seen a much wider uptake in, in, in use. And not only can those digital tools support remote monitoring of patients by healthcare professionals, the use of them can actually have a really positive impact for people with diabetes in their day-to-day -day lives. So there are mobile health apps available, for example. They can be used by the patients to help them manage their conditions, increase their engagement with their health, and uh, reduce some of the burdens that uh, we discussed of managing uh, diabetes. Right. Okay. So that's that's a bonus and a positive to come out of COVID. I like that. Yeah. They're, they're kind of few and far between. They are. Okay. Um, maybe a, a good thing to just, well, we, we've spoken about it a little bit, but if, if people are worried that they might be pre-diabetic or experience some of the symptoms you mentioned themselves or a family member, what should they do, you know, tomorrow morning? What do they what do they actually need to make time and get off the sofa and actually it's that was probably a bad thing to say because people get hard with that idea of being lazy if they have diabetes. That's absolutely not the case. No, I didn't mean that. But what should they do if they're concerned? I think the best advice, Mike. For anybody who's concerned about their risk of developing type 2 diabetes should first speak with their GP practice. And as we talked about, if you are at risk, you will be you may be eligible for referral to Healthier You, NHS uh, Diabetes Prevention Program, and your GP practice will be aware of this and they can deal with the referral. Like we said, for those aged 40 to 74, they can take up the offer of a free NHS health check to assess their risk of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease, other conditions such as high blood pressure. There's also, Mike, a great tool on the Diabetes UK website. So that's the Diabetes UK website. If people Google that, it's called Know Your Risk. Okay. By answering a few simple questions, people can gauge what their risk for developing type 2 diabetes might be. And that website also contains advice and materials on reducing your risk of pre-diabetes and indeed type 2 diabetes, some of the things you and I have had the uh, opportunity to discuss today. So yeah, just that's the, that website is Diabetes UK, know your risk, 
And if you want to type into your um, into Google, riskscore.diabetes.org.uk. That's riskscore.diabetes.org.uk. Excellent. And th those are the resources that we mentioned earlier, aren't they? Absolutely. Good. Absolutely. All right. So look, some very important stuff there, some very sobering facts, and uh, also advice on what we can do if we're concerned. So, Sean, thank you very much indeed for chatting. It, it's much appreciated. No, thank you, Mike. And as I said in the conversation, thank you for all the great work you and the team at UK Health Radio are doing. Uh, awareness is so important and the opportunity for people to have these types of conversations and reach as many people as we can is crucial because uh, together we can make a huge impact uh, for those people who are living with diabetes. And um, yeah, thank you for all the work you've done and thank you for the opportunity to talk. Thank you very much to Sean Gaffney from Roche for being the guest on this week's show. And of course, a big thanks to all of you for listening. I really do appreciate everyone taking the time to listen and hopefully enjoy and see you again next week. Thanks for listening to the Relax Back UK show. Join me, Mike Dilk, again next week for more fascinating interviews and chat. If you're listening to the podcast version, please subscribe, like, and share it with your family and friends. And have a healthy week. Until next week.